optimistic because I've been optimistic for the last two years because mm. there is a path there that is strong enough so far to have overcome the challenges. I'll keep doing whatever I can to uh, help putting in place a foundation that means we're not having this argument in 10, 50 or 100 years' time, but focusing on students. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're discussing one of the defining issues of Australian public life, the hot button issue of school funding. Do state schools get a fair go? How much should governments give to non-government schools? And how can we assess fairness amid all these competing demands and all this heated politics? To try to make sense of the school funding wars, I'm joined by Grattan Institute's School Education Program Director, Peter Goss, who was described by the Australian Financial Review recently as Australia's foremost independent school funding analyst. Peter, welcome. Great to be with you. Now, before we get into the detail, Peter, of the latest in the school funding wars, can I ask you to bring us up to speed? Because it all gets a bit confusing for people like me. We've had the Gonski Report. We've had something called Gonski 2.0. We've had something called the Cheney Review. What are all these things and, and where are we up to? Let me start by taking you even further back into the 19th century. There were different types of schools. Um, school was not something that was expected everyone would go through to year 12. The government funded most, but there were also many Catholic schools where Catholics were very disadvantaged in Australia in the 19th century. Mm. Many um, Catholic parishes provided their own local school and they were not usually well off. There were a few well off Anglican schools. Fast forward through most of the 20th century, that model, again, particularly for Catholic schools, became untenable because the way they got most of their teachers was from men and women who had taken orders, who mm -hmm. had become a brother or a nun and could then teach in the schools. Amid the population boom of the 1960s and then fewer people taking orders, that model couldn't hold. At that point, Australia made a choice that we have to live with now that all non-government schools would get some government funding. That's a legitimate public policy choice. The question is how. The way that was done in the first instance was in response to political pressure, and political pressure was a key factor in a whole series of a whole series of settlements through the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. And that brings us up to the original Gonski in 2011. What was the importance of that document? The Labor government at the time had recognised two things that were known, but they called them out very publicly. One was that school funding was a mess. There was deal layered on deal. There was no consistency. The second was that the schools that tend to serve most of the most disadvantaged students, the government schools, mm. were relatively less well-funded compared to what they needed to provide a good level of education than the non-government schools. In simple terms, we were giving 
relatively more money to those who needed it least and not enough money to those who needed it most. So David Gonski, a businessman, was asked to find a way of breaking through this mess. It was a fantastic report. It said the principle should be needs-based funding that is independent of sector. Now, need has two different components. Mm -hmm. The first is that if you've got an individual student who has extra need, that might be because they come from a poor background, they don't speak English at home, they've got a disability, they're Indigenous or they're in a remote area, then the data says it costs more to give them an equivalent level of education. Sure. And so each student, um, for each student who is disadvantaged, the school would be given more money. The second part of needs-based funding was that when parents choose to send their children to a non-government school, then they would be expected to contribute something. And the more able they are to contribute more money, the more they would be expected to contribute. So needs-based funding since Gonski 1 has had these two parts, the need of the child and then for non-government schools, the ability of parents to pay school fees. Okay, so Gonski 1 was a fantastic report, but it was Julia Gillard's. Has it now died given that Julia Gillard has left the political scene? It has provided a new foundation that we may yet be able to build a rational policy on top of. Mm-hmm. Um, in the implementation, a, when it was a, brought down by Julia Gillard, it got huge public support from a wide range of sources. People could see it made sense, it was fairer, it was going to be a smarter way to spend the scarce taxpayer dollar. Mm-hmm. It, of course, became very political soon after that. Um, At various times, the coalition government was with it, was against it, was on a unity ticket, threw it out. Um, That meant that under the huge political pressure of the last Labor government, Mm -hmm. a lot of special deals were done. And in particular, the idea was no school could lose a dollar. Right. That was a Gillard proposal. Yes, it was. And and that's problematic because given the, the previous funding was a hodgepodge of special deals built over time, some of the schools were clearly funded more than the formula said we need, some of them nearly three times as much. Others were funded well below what we thought they needed. If you're going to move to, new, to needs-based funding under any consistent model, some schools are going to gain and some schools are going to lose, and that should be the right outcome. Okay, so we've since then had a change of government, not just several changes of Prime Minister, but an actual change of government. The Turnbull government, am I right, Peter, uh, produced something called Gonski 2. What's that about? That's right, Paul. For a number of years after Malcolm Turnbull uh, took the Prime Ministership, the Coalition was saying, we believe in needs-based funding. It's the right thing to do, but they had no plan for how to actually deliver it Mm -hmm. until 2017. And part of the bind that they were in was that while some schools were overfunded, most were underfunded. And therefore, if you're going to get everyone to the right level of funding, that needs more money. Mm -hmm. Simon Birmingham in 2017 came up with an approach that tried to actually move away from the special deals and say, yes, the coalition would put in more money than they had previously been willing to, more money, in fact, than they were legislatively obliged to, right. not, not as much as Labor, um, but they would do it in a way that was entirely consistent 
And the name Gonski too came about, people might remember, by the uh, politically brilliant manoeuvre of announcing this new deal with David Gonski back up on stage and David Gonski and Malcolm Turnbull are uh, famously friends. Mm. Um, And so the coalition co-opted that idea. Now, we can either talk about this on the politics level, but on a policy level, actually, it was both sides of politics saying, we believe in needs-based funding. How do we get there? That's actually a really positive move and historic in in the terms of Australian school funding. Absolutely. So we've had the Gillard government with Gonski 1. We've had the Turnbull government with Gonski 2. We've had, as you suggest, this broad consensus towards needs-based funding. Why did we have something called the Cheney Review? The funding formula is extraordinarily complex. There are elements upon elements. So I should know, amongst other things, when I wrote a report on it a couple of years, I had to build a model of it, and it takes a while to get your head into that space. (laughs) Um, Gonski, too, did most things right, um, but there were a couple of things that it missed. The Mm -hmm. biggest thing that it did was right was to say, actually, some schools can lose a dollar. If schools are overfunded, then over time, they should come down. Mm-hmm. This mostly applies in the non-government sector. Now we get into the next level of detail. The major factor that affects how much funding a non-government school gets on a per-student basis is how much the parents are expected to contribute. Right. So if you remember, a school in a well-off area, parents will be expected to contribute more. A school in a less well-off area, less broadly, makes sense, lines up with the way we do Um, means testing in a range of public policy areas. The way that the capacity to contribute was calculated for each school had historically been based on where the parents live. Paul, if you live in a certain suburb, Mm -hmm. let's get some data from the census about how much the people in that suburb earn and then that is indicative of what you might be able to contribute. Well, of course, it's broadly indicative, but Mm -hmm. it's also deeply problematic because even within a small area, some people earn more, some people earn less. Mm -hmm. And Catholic schools had argued that within each of the small areas that were used in the formula, the richest families sent their their kids to the independent school, whereas the Catholic families were in that area were less well off. And there was some truth to that. Now, that was linked in to a different piece that partially mitigated mitigated against the uh, errors in that for Catholic schools, um, something called the system-weighted average. Mm -hmm. And that said, in fact, rather than each independent school will be treated on its merits according to what's called this SES score, Mm -hmm. socioeconomic status score, but Catholic schools would all be treated as alike. Now, one of the uh, blunders, I I believe, um, in the original Gonski II legislation was that Simon Birmingham removed the system-weighted average and said that all non-government schools should be treated on their merits, Mm -hmm. but he left in place an old and somewhat broken method of calculating for each school how much could the parents contribute. Um, And in any complex formula, when you change one piece, you need to think about how that interacts with others. And these two interacted very strongly. Okay. What happened then was that um, a new independent body was put in place 
We argued strongly for that, as did some others, called the National Schools Resourcing Board. Its first task was to have a look at how much parents could contribute. It looked at how well does this model of saying where do parents live work, and the answer was not that great. And then it came up with a new model which said, actually, we can now link data together. Each school knows where its parents live. If that information is given to the tax office, then in a very secure way, the tax office can link it up with how much those families earn. And for each school, the, parent, the ability of the parents to contribute could actually now be based on something which is much better than where they live on how much they actually earn. Right. So we've had this broad consensus on uh, political consensus on the uh, attractiveness, desirability, fairness of needs-based funding. We've had a lot of work at a policy level and government level about exactly how to implement that, what is the best model. And yet now, Peter, now we have yet more reports that in the final days of the Turnbull government, Malcolm Turnbull and his then Education Minister Simon Birmingham were working on what appears to be a special deal, a, a peace deal with the Catholic school sector. What do we know about that deal and what do we make of it? Just this morning, the Herald Sun and then the Australian have been reporting that a, a new deal was on the table in the dying days of the Turnbull government, as you say. Um, I find this a little surprising because one thing that Simon Birmingham did was steadfastly refuse to give special deals to anyone. Mm -hmm. He was aiming for consistency. But there was still a lot of angst. Independent schools, some of their schools were going to lose money, had mostly done it with good grace. Catholic schools, who were not going to get as much as they would have done under Labor, made a lot of noise in the first instance. Um, and some of that was saying because the SES school was broken. Mm -hmm. How can you treat us um, as though we are equivalent to the independent school when our, when our parents are not as well off? Um, now, what was surprising was that that angst continued after the Cheney review because the Cheney review said, here's how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yes, the old model was a bit broken. Here's a new model that is better. But what seems to have happened was that some of the Catholic leadership had rediscovered their power. They had done that through a number of high-profile interventions, first in the Batman by-election, mm -hmm. then in the Longman by-election, and seemed, some in the Catholic school system seem to have felt, why don't we go for broke? When I talk to people within Catholic school leadership, some would say, it's only fair that all of our Catholic primary schools can offer very low fees. Others would say, what's most important is that the school fees in our Catholic primary schools are affordable. And what's affordable in Point Piper, of course, is not the same as what's affordable in Blacktown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there were at least some within Catholic school education who said, even if the Cheney Review were put into place, then it's still not nearly good enough. And there was a feeling within the Liberal Party that they had been seen to take on the Catholics in an unhealthy way. They had damaged the relationship. They had pushed Catholic voters into the arms of Labour. 
something, anything needed to be done. Right. Um, and, of course, uh, in the dying days of the Turnbull prime ministership, people seem to have become desperate on all sides. Um, maybe that explains what looks like a really weird deal. Why? Th- this deal, as it's been reported, I can't verify it, is effectively a, a, a new game of heads you win, tails you win. Mm-hmm. The Cheney Review gives a new and, in my view, much better way of calculating how much parents can contribute. If that helps you as a school, Paul, you get that. If, on the other hand, the old system being treated like an average school is better for you, you get funded that way. So this is not just no school lose a dollar. This is choose whichever of these options is going to be most favourable to you. And here you go. Here's the money. Right. So some in the Catholic sector seem to be, as you say, going for broke. There seems to be indications that the coalition government, now under Scott Morrison's leadership, may well produce a new special deal. But into this mix, Peter, you've your own modest proposal that possibly we can find a path through all the politics to a genuine needs-based school funding system. What's the fundamental aim of your plan before we go through it in some little detail? There are two goals overall for the plan. The first is to try and create a good enough school funding system. (laughs) No school school funding system is perfect. All formulas have flaws. We shouldn't be aiming for perfect. We should be aiming for good enough. Mm -hmm. The second part is, well, in some ways, so that we don't have to do another one of these podcasts about school funding (laughs) because there are many things that make far more of a difference to students' learning than arcane elements of a funding formula. And yet Australia are world champions at distracting ourselves from talking about the real issues and instead talking about the money. So it's both to find a good enough and to just let us all move on. Okay, so the the GOSS model is a five-point plan. Let's go through them, Pete. uh, Step number one, you've called focus on what matters most. I've called it a five-point plan um, because... In some ways, looking back at this long history, our politicians have been a, like, a, like a group of addicts who are unable to step away from that hit, that, they, that political hit that they get from a special deal. And I think everyone knows that if we all stay clean and all stay away from, better, from special deals, the nation is better off. Mm-hmm. But of course, once one person succumbs, the other succumbs. I didn't need a 10-step plan in order to keep us all clean, I proposed a five-step plan. (laughs) The first one is to focus on what matters most. Going back to that original Gonski report and then updating some of the analysis, it's very clear that the students who are making the least progress in our schools are those who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Right. Because they make less progress, they end up achieving lower by the time they leave school. That harms their opportunities in the job market. That makes them more likely to be on welfare or to have challenges with the law. That perpetuates to the next generation. 
this is the problem that we should really be focusing on solving. And yet you can add to that confirmation from an international, uh, from an international study that we put relatively less money into our needy schools than any other country in the OECD. Um, when the study asked principals, do you, do you struggle to get the resources you need? Do you struggle to attract the teachers you need? And by a large margin, our principals in disadvantaged schools said, yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. And our principals in advantaged schools said, meh, a little bit. Mm -hmm. That disparity is really big. What matters most is needs-based funding so that we get more money into the hands of the most into the hands of the schools teaching the most disadvantaged students because that's where the evidence says it will make most difference which brings us to step 2 which is a call for us to affirm the principles of needs based funding in some ways this shouldn't be needed because mm. we have actually got to a, a near historic bipartisan agreement on the idea of needs based funding reaffirming the principles of that would really help. First, that students who are disadvantaged need more money. Second, that parents who can afford more should contribute more if they are in a not if they choose a non-government school. But the, the Cheney Review put this really nicely. It argued that non-government school communities with the same capacity to contribute should attract the same level of government support. Mm -hmm. It sounds anodyne, it sounds obvious, mm -hmm. but it's not what has been happening. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, mm -hmm. would rule out a return to the system-weighted average and would say that schools should be treated on their merits. Step three, you're proposing that we agree on a compromise. That word, why do we need a compromise? What would a good compromise look like in these circumstances? A compromise is needed, and not a special deal, but a compromise is needed because all of the various stakeholders have legitimate concerns in the context of a funding formula, which is necessarily imperfect. Mm -hmm. Parts of that compromise might be about the ultimate shape of the formula, but much of it will be about the transition process. Right. The other part of a compromise is that everybody gives something that they value and everybody gets something that they value. Mm -hmm. The first part, the domino that could enable all of the other dominoes to, to topple, is ruling out the return of the system-weighted average. Right. And if both the coalition and Labor were to do that, then the discussion becomes much cleaner. Now, some in Catholic school education have already said that's gone, that's not coming back. The independent schools would like it to be gone, but there are some in Catholic school, some in the Catholic school leadership who are still fighting for it. The coalition hasn't given a clear answer and Bill Shorten has indicated that he's quite in favour of it uh, on the record. Um, whilst that's still on the table, we can't move forward. Mm. Mm. A second would be to say Cheney basically got it right. Yes, there are some details they need to be worked through, but a better way of es estimating how much people can pay is by asking how much they can pay by looking at their income. The third, the transition time, given that some schools will end up better funded and some schools will end up worse funded, compared to an old model, there does, of course, need to be an appropriate 
time to transition. Um, there was a quirk in the way that Gonski 2.0 was done where Catholic schools were treated together, independent schools were treated apart. That did mean that if you were an overfunded Catholic school, you didn't have as long to transition down as an independent school. So, the, so in that respect, the complaints that we've heard from the Catholic school sector have some foundation. They do. Um, they particularly have a foundation when we're bringing in a new way of estimating how much parents can contribute, and that won't actually be settled potentially until 2020. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit rough to say in 2020, oh, sorry, your school is overfunded by 15% and that's gonna, that transition's going to happen in three years. Right. Um, so this was particularly a complaint from the National Catholic Education Commission and, it's a, and, and Ray Collins, who leads it there. Um, the new timing has shown that in real stark relief and for consistency, giving a longer transition time for any overfunded school would be consistent. It wouldn't be a special deal. It would mean about a billion dollars extra going to Catholic schools over a decade, but it is justifiable. Hmm. Okay, so you've described a, a compromise, uh, which leads us to step four. Interesting the way you phrase this, Peter. Focus on what will be gained rather than what may be lost. What do you mean by that? Let's go back to that idea of saying the... Um, there's a group of stakeholders here who know they will be better if they go clean of special deals, mm -hmm. but temptation is always there. Just one special deal, Paul, just for me. <laughs> um, the mindset is really important in that area, that when people focus on what has been lost, oh, but this part of the formula dudded me or they, mm -hmm. you know, they said something nasty over there, then it's very easy to fall into rumination and that doesn't help anyone. Mm -hmm. A much better approach is to take a positive outlook. In fact, if we could get a compromise like the one I described through, every major stakeholder has gained something that they really value in the in putting Gonski 2 and then the Cheney review on top of it. What would government schools gain? Government schools would gain um, a bipartisan approach to needs-based funding mm -hmm. that is locked in from the coalition in a way that it never has been. And um, they would, in fact, get the fastest growth of all of the three sectors in Commonwealth funding. Right. What would independent schools gain? They would see that all Catholic schools are being treated on their merits and equally. And, in fact, it's, it's not necessarily well known. The most underfunded schools in the country are actually some independent schools. And this is, again, part of the historical quirks. Mm -hmm. um, also the most overfunded. Mm -hmm. But those underfunded schools would get brought up more quickly. And the Catholic school sector, they seem to be the sector with the loudest complaints. And you've acknowledged during this discussion that some of what they are complaining about has some foundation. What would the Catholic school sector get from the GOSS model? First they would get some more money. Mm -hmm. um, that money would not be a special deal. It would be based on two factors. First, adopting the income-based approach to figuring out how much parents can contribute removes the bias that was in the previous formula. And that would mean, my estimates are, about an extra 100 to $150 million per year 
you know, at $100 million up over a decade, that's a lot of money mm-hmm. because it's a better formula. Um, the other thing they would get related to that is vindication. There are some in the Catholic leadership that have been arguing loudly that this model was broken, that they got ignored. They have, in fact, already been vindicated by the Cheney Review, and this would be a public acknowledgement. Very interesting. The second part is that transition timing I talked about by treating each Catholic school as in, as standalone for the purposes of transition, then that would be worth about a billion dollars. But again, that's not a special deal. That is part of the transition timing. If we all focus on the good that getting to a consistent needs-based funding approach without special deals gives each party something they really value, doesn't give them everything they might value, but there's no compromise that's possible if you have to give everyone what they value. Um, And it would leave the nation in a much better position and it might just allow the debate to move forward from from funding onto other things. Which gets us to step five, which is the big visionary thought that you've just alluded to. Possibly there might be some other things that are worth discussing in the education sector. I'm going to channel the voices of the women in my life, Paul, who would say... Careful, Peter. ..who would say that um, when you want to stick to something that is a change, find something else to distract yourself with. Stop ruminating on the old. Throw yourself into something new. Fortunately, there is an obvious candidate at hand. If our politicians, if the leaders of our various education sectors spend all of their public effort that is now being put into funding and through that focus into how do we improve the outcomes for every student in every school, regardless of sector, it would help distract us from the old world of funding and move us into a new world where we focus on students. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But let me ask you a question. As Australia's foremost expert on the school funding debate, is there any room for optimism? Can you see us stepping beyond school funding to that much more important question about getting better results for all of our students? Yes. Through the debate last year in 2017, there were a lot of forces lined up against Gonski too, but it stood up. Mm -hmm. It got improved during the process. What enabled Gonski too to keep standing and not fall over in the face of enormous public pressure was partly the underlying consistency around needs-based funding from both parties. Even if they fought about the details, there was an element there that a lot of people could see this is the way forward. And then the unheralded crossbench. They're often derided in current Australian politics, but Mm. in this case, they need to be praised. They were the ones that focused on what does this mean for students? Is this fair? Does it help us get past arguments over funding and move on to more important things? The crossbench was what enabled the coalition to get the Gonski II legislation through in the face of opposition from Labor. Any changes that would put special deals in would also have to go through the crossbench. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that they would give a special deal pretty short shrift, (laughs) but they may give a sensible compromise 
um, the assistance that it needs. So I'm optimistic because I've been optimistic for the last two years because mm. there is a path there that is strong enough so far to have overcome the challenges. I'll keep doing whatever I can to uh, help putting in place a foundation that means we're not having this argument in 10, 50 or 100 years' time but focusing on students. Peter Goss, thanks for your expertise, for your insights and perhaps in particular in this context for your optimism. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read Peter's reports and articles on school funding, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all Grattan's news, reports and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.